We reading starting in verse one, Exodus twenty-seven. And if you would stand for the reading of God's word this morning, starting in verse one, you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall uh, make four bronze rings at its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you on the mountain. So shall it be made. Dear Lord, our Father in heaven, God, once again we come to this portion of scripture, the tabernacle, Lord, that you had the Israelites build in in worship of you, Lord, that you would live in their midst, Lord. Yet the tabernacle taught the Israelites so much, Lord. God, I pray this morning as we see uh, what the purpose of the courtyard and bronze altar was for, Lord, that we learn more about our relationship with you, Lord, what it what it takes to have a relationship with you, what you sacrifice so that we can be reconciled with you, Lord, what the cost of sin truly is. God, I pray that all of this is heard this morning, Lord. God, I also pray if there's someone here this morning or listening online that has never heard the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that through this Old Testament text, Lord, it would be extremely clear to them Salvation is only through the cross, through Jesus, through his death and resurrection and faith in him, Lord. So be with us this morning as we walk through this important text, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Of course, we're continuing through the the details of the tabernacle, and today we're going to be looking at the courtyard that, that is on the tabernacle that, that's outside of the tent portion of the tabernacle. And before we get there and actually look at uh, the text this morning, I just want to say I've been amazed as I've been studying and, and each re- week preaching through the tabernacle. I've been amazed at how the tabernacle taught the Israelites over and over and really over again. It, it taught the Israelites the gospel. Over and over again, pointing Israel forward to Jesus, to the New Testament, There's just this amazing consistency, Uh, and we're going to see the same thing today. Last week, we looked at the tent portion of the tabernacle. Today, we're going to be looking at the courtyard, the courtyard that surrounded the tent portion. We're going to 
uh, just like the tent portion, we're going to start with the item that's found within the, the courtyard, and then we're going to move to the description of the courtyard itself, just like we saw the items within the tent portion of the tabernacle, and then we talked about the, the description of the tent itself. So I have three parts of the sermon this morning. Uh, really, the first two parts, I just want to walk through our, our uh, passage, this chapter, pretty quickly and just make some comments as we walk through it. Uh, I want to look first at the bronze altar. That's the first part of the chapter. And then secondary, I want to look at the courtyard itself. And, and then I want to end with six observations. And we're going to spend most of our time and, and see the application uh, in those observations about this chapter. So let's start with the bronze altar. This altar, uh, w- what we just read about, was the biggest piece of furniture within the tabernacle itself. It was seven feet wide by seven feet long and four feet high. And, and it was on the the outside, it was in the outside portion of the tabernacle in the courtyard. In fact, it was the very first thing you saw as you entered into the gates of the courtyard, into the tabernacle, you saw the bronze altar. So let's look at its description. Look at verse 1 again. It says this, You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So on the four corners of this altar, there should be four horns. You're not exactly sure what the purpose of the horns were for. Uh, maybe it was just some kind of decoration. Maybe there was some symbolism there. Uh, some think it was to tie down Uh, the sacrifices that were on the altar, but I think that's probably unlikely because everything that would have been burnt on this burnt, on this altar would have already been sacrificed, would have already been slaughtered. So we don't know exactly what these horns were used for. What we do know is that the, the blood of the sacrifice was to be placed on these horns, on the base of the altar and the horns of the altar. We see this in Exodus 29, 12. It says this, And you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. Leviticus uh, 8 verse 15 says this, and he killed it, this is the sacrifice, he killed it, and Moses took the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar. The blood of the sacrifice was used to purify the altar and it was placed on the horns of the altar and the base of the altar and Before I go any further, I just ran into Daniel this morning, and we were talking, and he made an observation that that I thought about, but it's not in my notes. He he said, could you imagine just how much blood would have been put on this altar? Like, over the years, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, the blood that would have been sprinkled on the base and on, on the horns of the altar, and what this altar would have looked like as sacrifices were made continually over the years. Look at verse 3. Let's keep going. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire uh, pans. You shall make all its utensils out of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. These are just the items that would be used for uh, the sacrifices as they would be burnt on the altar. Verse 5, it says this, And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make 
poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze, and the poles shall be put through the ring so that, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. Just like the other items that we've seen in the, the tabernacle, this whole thing was meant to be portable as the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It was meant to be portable. And, and that's true for the altar itself. It was meant to be portable and therefore carried with these poles. Verse 8 says this, you shall make it hollow. Why make it hollow? Well, this was the biggest item and it being hollow would have made it light and easier to move. Lighter and easier to move. It still would have been heavy. Verse 8, you shall make it hollow with boards, and it has, as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Again, this is the bronze altar. It was in the courtyard, the outside portion of the tent, right? Outside of the tent, it's where the sacrifices were made in the courtyard, and they were put on this bronze altar. Now, real quick, I want to talk about the sacrifices since we're talking about the altar what sacrifices would have been made in the courtyard and on this altar we learn in leviticus that there was five main kinds of offerings and sacrifices again the details are found in leviticus uh, and, and it's very uh there's a ton of details in leviticus the first one was called the whole burnt offering or sometimes in scriptures you're reading through it's just referred to as the burnt offering this is found in leviticus 1 where the whole animal, that's why it's called the whole burnt offering, the whole animal would have been burnt on the altar. Right? Sacrifice, slaughtered, and then put on the altar, and the whole thing would have been burnt. Right? This was a sacrifice for sin in general, but more importantly, it really represented a complete surrender to God. As the whole animal was given to God, it represented the life of the worshiper, completely surrendered God. In fact, the Hebrew word uh, used for burnt literally means something like turned into smoke or transformed into smoke. Therefore, the animal was actually transformed into smoke and then it ascended into heaven. And we see over and over again in scripture as a pleasant aroma to the Lord. The next type of offering, right after the burnt offering, would have been the grain offering. This is found in Leviticus chapter 2. You would sacrifice part of one's harvest. You would burn part of it and then give part of it to the priests. Uh, the offering was, was really a tribute to God. Sometimes some theologians call this a tribute offering. It was a tribute to God, the king of Israel. It was like bringing a gift to a king as you approached his throne. As you approach God's throne, right, the Holy of Holies, as you approach the tent, you would bring a tribute offering to him. Another, or third type of offering that would happen on the bronze altar in the courtyard, uh, it was called the peace offering, or sometimes called the fellowship offering. Right, this is found in Leviticus 3. In this offering, only part of the animal was burned, the fat portions of the animal. It was born, but the rest was grilled, and eaten by the worshipers. This was a sign of fellowship and, and peace. This, is, this would happen after reconciliation with God. It's a sign of fellowship between God and man and peace. That's why it's called the peace offering, peace between God and man. It was really a joy-filled celebration as Israel, the Israelites in the courtyard, would be fellowshipping with each other and with God, eating a meal together. Finally, there were 
uh, two different offerings, one called the sin offering, one called the guilt offering. This is found in Leviticus 4 through 5. These offerings atoned for a particular sin, either for the individual, sometimes we see for the nation as a whole, whether this sin was deliberate or not. In this offering, sacrifices were were made, and the blood, again, the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the altar itself, put on the four horns of the altar, the four corners of the altar, and then on the base of the altar. The blood represented the payment of sins. The animal had to die, in other words, that 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 worshiper could live because of his particular sin or guilt. That's why it's called the sin or guilt offering. These were the five different sacrifices that were made on the bronze altar within the courtyard of the tabernacle. Now, before we move on to the courtyard itself and see the details of that, there's one thing, one more thing I want to point out about the bronze altar, and this one is, is somewhat obvious. It was bronze. Look at the end of verse 2. It says this, And you shall overlay it with bronze. The end of verse 3, And you shall, shall uh, make all the, its utensils of bronze. Just over and over again, we see this. The end of verse 6, Poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Again, we see this over and over again. Everything was overlaid or made with bronze when it had to do with the bronze altar. Obviously, this is why it's called the bronze altar, but there is a couple of reasons for the bronze. First, bronze was a a very durable material, and remember, this was in the courtyard of the tabernacle. It was outside in the elements, so it needed to be made with a, a very durable material, and that would be bronze. But there's a second reason, and I think it's important For me to point this out again, bronze was a less expensive, less beautiful, less pure material than what was what was the items within the tabernacle. As I mentioned last week, the the further you got away from God's presence, the Holy of Holies, the further you got away from the presence of God, the less expensive the materials are that are used. This taught the Israelites a, a couple Things, a very important lesson. One commentator put it this way. All the furnishings in the rooms within the tent are covered with gold, signifying the royal splendor of heaven. Remember the, the tabernacle, as you walked into the tabernacle, you were entering into a heavenly realm. There was angels all over the walls. Everything was made of gold. You're entering into a heavenly realm as you entered into the tent, but outside in the courtyard, the altar is made of bronze, a less expensive metal, and the common Israelite worshiped there. The courtyard is more earthly in character. The relationship between the two doubtless suggests to Israel that their own earthiness is contrast to God's heavenly character. The Israelites were on earth and God in heaven which brings us to the second part of the passage this morning the courtyard itself and so again the courtyard was the outside portion of the tent it was outside and as we'll see it was it, it was fenced off but all the israelites were allowed to enter into the courtyard you didn't have to be a priest you had to be a priest to enter into the tent portion of the tabernacle into the holy place Only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, but the courtyard, the average Israelite was welcome to enter. Again, inside the tent represented a heavenly realm where only God and the priests were allowed, but the courtyard where heaven meets earth. 
In fact, Philip Ryken writes this, the courtyard was a place for the sons and daughters of earth to meet with the Lord of heaven. Look at verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. It's uh, 20 pillars, and their 20 bases shall be of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be uh, of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20, and their bases 20 of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, uh, there shall be hangings of, uh, for uh, 50 cubits and with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court uh, on the front to the east shall be 50 uh, cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, and there are three pillars on the three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits, and there are three pillars, and there are three bases. This means the courtyard, if you do the math, was about 75 feet by 150 feet. So to get your mind wrapped around that, that's roughly four tennis courts put together. That's how big the courtyard would have been. Again, the courtyard was the outside portion. It would have been fenced off, uh, marked off its boundaries with this fence. And this fence probably would, would be somewhere around eight feet tall. So that means you couldn't just look in to see what was going on within the courtyard, within the tabernacle. You had to enter into the courtyard to see what was happening. And once again, the courtyard had to face, just like the tent portion, just like the tabernacle as a whole, the, the courtyard had to face a particular direction. Verse 9 says, on the south side. Verse 11 says, on the north side. Verse 12 says, the west side. And then verse 13 says, on the front to the east meaning the front always had to be eastward. The front faced east, meaning the entrance was on the east into the courtyard. Just like the tent, as you moved westward, you got closer and closer to the presence of God. As you moved eastward, you were leaving the presence of God. And if you missed the sermon last week, there's a, a reason for that. I would encourage you to listen to the sermon. Look at verse 16, it says this, For the gate of the court, this is the entrance, the, the gated part for the gate of the court on the east side there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework it shall have four pillars and with them four bases all the pillars around the court shall be filleted uh, with silver their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze the length of the court shall be a, a hundred cubits and the breadth of the uh, 50 and the height um, uh, five cubits with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all uh, the pegs of the court shall be of bronze again this is the courtyard it's where the average israelite uh, could go to worship god where the sacrifices were made on the bronze altar. As you enter into the gate, you would make the sacrifice and then put the, the sacrifice on the altar to be burned. So that's really our passage this morning as we kind of looked at the details of the, 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 
the bronze altar in verses 1 through 8, and then looked at the details of the courtyard itself, verses 9 through 19. Now I want to make some observations, and this is where we're going to find our application for us this morning. How does this passage relate to us, the church? Why are we preaching through the tabernacle? These are kind of the questions I want to answer this morning with six observations. The first observation is this, and this is very applicable to us. God commands corporate worship. God commands corporate worship. Now, this may be obvious, but I think it's extremely important to point out that in the Old Testament, just like the New, but in the Old Testament, to be obedient to God in worship, to be obedient in God in worship, you needed priests. You needed the tabernacle. You needed the altar. This is where it's connected to the, the, the New Testament. You needed to worship in community to be obedient to God. One theologian put it this way. God also taught his people in many ways during the Old Testament times that he loved corporate worship. Individuals were not to worship him separately at their own homes or in mere family groups or at convenient locations as the pagans did. Instead, they were to come together as an entire people, bring their sacrifices to to one place, cook them all on a single altar, and eat them all in a single location, tabernacle. It was corporate worship. This means, again, in both the Old and the New Testament, even though we don't have a bronze altar, we don't worship in the same way as the Old Testament saints worshiped. Both in the Old and New Testament, God commands corporate worship. Now, I want to be clear, we are to worship always. We're to live a life of worship. I mean, we are to worship when we're at home. But we live in such an individualistic society Because of this, many believers think their relationship with God is only personal. It's a personal faith. It's a personal religion. It's a personal relationship. Now, faith is very personal. I can't have faith for you, in other words. But it's also very communal. In fact, Pastor Andy came up to me this morning, and he said this, and I think it's a great quote. It's personal, but it was never meant to be private. It's a personal faith, but it was never meant to be private. In both the Old and New Testaments, when you were saved, and this just hit me, I don't know how long ago, when you were saved, in both the Old and New Testament, you were saved into a community. In the Old Testament is Israel, and the New Testament is the church. You cannot be saved in the New Testament and not be a part of the church. You are saved into the church. You're saved into a community. In the Old Testament, Israel was to come together and worship God in corporate worship in a community. In one location, the courtyard of the tabernacle, they were to fellowship with God in a community. To fellowship with each other and with God together. You know, and this shouldn't surprise us because God himself is a community. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, 
community. Unity, one God. Diversity, three persons. In both the Old and New Testament, we are to image God in community. Unity, one community. Israel in the Old, the church in the New. Diversity, different people. Diversity of gifts, of roles, of parts. You think of the metaphor of membership. And people that say membership isn't in Scripture need to look up the word member. <laughs> it's in Scripture. We are one member of a body. Just like my finger is a separate member of my body, one body, diversity, a finger, of one pinky, one right pinky at least, <laughs> then a left pinky, and, and I need both. That's the model that we have. It reflects the character, the nature of God. God loves corporate worship. Even as the Old Testament progressed and the Israelites, the Jews, would spread across the world, God commanded three times a year that they would all come together for three separate festivals and, and worship in corporate worship. God loves corporate worship. Again, because it reflects his nature. Therefore, he called his people to come together and worship him in his courtyard. Corporately. Now, before I move on, because I think this is such an applicable point, I want to chase this down a rabbit hole a little bit. Just a side note. Just to drive this point home. I hear Christians say often, when, when we worship in song, right? We come and worship in song. We worship in so many different ways, right? We're, we're worshiping and hearing the word of God right now. But when we worship in song, singing praises... I hear people say all the time, we have, we have an audience of one, right, God. You know, that's not exactly true. When we sing, we are to sing to one another. Listen to Ephesians 5.18, it says this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. In other words, we are to sing to God, but as we sing to God, we are to sing to one another, to encourage one another. You know, I've said this a number of times before, but, but a lot of pastors take Mondays off, and, and I'm not trying to judge any other pastor take Mondays off, but a lot of pastors like to take Mondays off, and, and and I think it's because they're worn out Sunday. But I've like learned I do not like taking Mondays off because I am so encouraged and energized Sunday morning that like I can't wait to get to the next passage studying and get to, to my office Monday morning. Because when I get here, I'm encouraged by the congregation singing to the Lord together. In fact, a lot of times I'm discouraged and, and throughout the week just because of everything that happens. And I just can't look, I look forward to to Sunday morning to hear everyone singing to the Lord these truths that are so dear to my heart. In fact, I get to do it twice Sunday morning, right? First service and second service. I'm doubly encouraged. We are to encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's one of the reasons we don't turn the lights too far down Sunday morning. Because we need to see each other. We need to hear each other. Again, I don't want to judge any other church or any other worship service out there. I've been going to our church since I was nine, so I, I'm not, I don't have any other church in mind, but 
But there's churches that turn the lights all the way down because I, I think they're trying to communicate that it's a personal relationship between you and God. This worship is between you and God. But that's not what Scripture says. We are to sing to each other as we sing to God. I'll get back to our sermon this morning. Again, my first observation, God commands corporate worship, not just individual worship. Second observation I want to point out is this, that the courtyard was a place of atonement. The courtyard was a place of atonement. It wasn't just a place of worship. It's where substitutionary atonement took place. Again, one of the things that the tabernacle taught was that there's a separation between man and God, very clearly. And that no human, not even the priest, not even the high priest, not even Moses, that no human can approach God without atonement. It taught over and over and over and over again, substitutionary atonement, that it was needed to have a relationship with God again. There is no relationship with God without substitutionary atonement. Let me explain just how a, a typical sacrifice was made in the courtyard at the tabernacle. It just so clearly illustrates substitutionary atonement. The worshiper would, would bring an animal that was supposed to be spotless or without defect, a, a perfect animal. He would bring it to the priest, and the priest would examine it to make sure that this guy isn't cheating out, he isn't taking his worst animal and saying it's a, it's a, his, a spotless animal. It needed to be spotless. The animal was probably raised by the worshiper himself in most cases. In, in other cases, very uh, rarely, it, it was bought by the, the worshiper, meaning it cost him something, meaning this truly was a sacrifice. It was costly. The worshiper then would lay his hands on the head of the animal, which identified with the animal. He wasn't laying his sins on the animal. He was identifying with the animal, saying this animal is a substitute. He is me. He is what I deserve. And then he will slit the animal's neck. The worshiper would, not the priest. And then drain out its blood. It's a vivid reminder of the cost of sin. Death. And the blood would be sprinkled on the altar, on the four corners of the altar. Then the dead animal would have been taken by the priest and burnt on the altar. The animal, in other words, received the penalty that the worshiper deserved. He was his substitute. God's justice was poured out on the animal, meaning that God's mercy could be poured out on the worshiper. Again, Scripture just vividly taught the Israelites that to have a relationship with God, to have a relationship with God, to be in covenant with Him, sin had to be dealt with, and death was needed. Brings my third observation. Once again, the bronze altar in, in the courtyard, the bronze altar connected the tabernacle to the garden. Connected the tabernacle to the garden. Turn with me to Genesis 2, verse 15. Genesis 2, 15 says this, The Lord 
God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That day that you eat of that tree, that one tree in the garden, the penalty for eating of that tree, the fruit of that tree, is death. In other words, the penalty for disobeying God is death. It was very clear right from the beginning, right, in the garden. The penalty for for sin, for disobeying God, no matter how big or small that sin is, by the way. In fact, just think about what the action is that Adam and Eve weren't to do. Taking a piece of fruit and eating it. It wasn't the action, it was the disobedience that was so costly. And the cost was death. That That means no matter what the sin is, how big or small it is, It's the disobedience, not what you did necessarily, that the penalty is death. That's why it's death for a white lie or for murder. The penalty of sin is death. This is very clear in the beginning. God set the standards very, very clear to man. But it's also clear throughout Scripture. Ezekiel 18.20 simply says, The soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages, this is what's owed, you work somewhere they they owe you something for that work well the wages of sin is death again god made this very clear right from the beginning for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die that's death is the wages of sin we'll turn to genesis 3 verse 1 Genesis 3 verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve got it. Sin equals death. Disobedience equals death. What happened? Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and they didn't die. Don't get me wrong, they died spiritually. They'll die physically years later, but they didn't die on that day. Genesis 2, 17, again, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This leads to some questions. How could God be a just God and not give Adam and Eve their wages? What they deserved, in other words. How could God be a just God and not administrate justice? Why didn't they die that day? Turn to Genesis 3, verse 20. Genesis 3, verse 20 says this, The man called his wife Zane Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife 
garments of skins and clothed them. What happened right after Adam and Eve sinned? What was the first thing that happened? They realized they were naked. They were exposed, in other words. The nakedness represented shame and guilt. They were guilty, and they, they had shame because of that guiltiness. And when I say guilt, it wasn't just a feeling of guilt, right? We have this idea that we just feel guilty. No, they were truly guilty and exposed. So what did God do to cover that shame and guiltiness? Verse 21, And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Listen, there was death on that day. There was death on that day. In fact, the first death ever on that day. But instead of them dying, Adam and Eve dying, by God's grace, there was a substitute. An animal sacrificed, killed, and in front of Adam and Eve, I'm sure, skinned. The skin of that sacrifice was placed on Adam and Eve's nakedness, covering their shame and guilt. That substitutionary atonement. There was a substitute. It was just like at the entrance of the tabernacle, the entrance of the courtyard, there was a substitute. An animal slaughtered, and these animals would, would cover, therefore, would cover the guilt of the worshiper. It's just like the garden. It's through substitutionary atonement that forgiveness of sins can happen. This is why Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, meaning without death, there is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be death. It was in the courtyard that forgiveness of sins was found. Therefore, this is so important, the courtyard was a place of joy. It was a place of joy. Brings me to my fourth observation. The courtyard was a place of joy. It was a place of atonement. It was a place of reconciliation. It was a place of forgiveness. It was a place of fellowship with God. Therefore, it was a place of joy. And the Israelites got this message clearly. Let me just read a couple passages in the Psalm. Psalm 65.3 says this. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for my transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Psalm 84.2 says this, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. These are people that understood forgiveness of sins. Psalm 84.10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 104. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. It's because it's 
where you find forgiveness, reconciliation, a courtyard, a bronze altar. A courtyard was a place of joy. But, this is so important, but joy was only found in those who recognized their own sin. Joy is only found in those who recognize their own sin and and seek after forgiveness through atonement, through the gospel. This brings me a, a fifth observation. The tabernacle taught the Israelites that the very first thing one needs to do to have a relationship with God is to recognize their own sin. Even though the courtyard was a a place of corporate worship, I want to be clear, it was also a place of personal reflection. As soon as you enter the gates, I want you to think about this, as soon as you enter the gates on the east side, the very first thing you saw was the bronze altar soaked in blood. Philip Ryken writes this, first things first, a sacrifice has to be made so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God. The tabernacle was designed to show this. The most prominent part of its structure was the Ten of Meetings. This is where God's presence was, the place that, that God was, and we spent so much time on that. That's, that's the most important place. The, the Ten of Meetings, the tent portion, and within the tent portion was the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. That's where God was. But standing between the worshiper and the presence of God was the largest piece of furniture at the tabernacle, the bronze altar. A.W. Pink writes this, It was at the bronze altar that the holiness and righteousness of God were on display, his hatred of sin and his justice in punishing it. The very first thing that confronted you as you entered into the courtyard was that you were a sinner. And the penalty of sin is death. There was no blame shifting. There was no excuses. There was no pointing fingers. The worshiper himself had to to lay his own hands on the animal. Identifying with that animal, then the worshiper would slit the animal's throat. Every time you entered into the courtyard, you were reminded of this. You saw a massive bronze altar soaked in blood. And this altar very purposefully stood between you and God. Think of the garden again. We talked about what Adam and Eve did as soon as, soon as they sinned. The very first thing they did after they, they ate the fruit recognize their nakedness. What was the very first thing they did when they were confronted with their sin? Genesis 3.11, God asked Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This just shows man's tendency. It's man's tendency to blame shift. 
When man's caught in, in sin, it's man's tendency to blame circumstances or another person. The courtyard le- left absolutely no room for blame shifting. The only way to God was through sacri- uh, su- substitutionary atonement. Someone or something had to die for your sins. The bronze altar reminded Israel of this every time they entered into the courtyard and they're in through the gates. And just a side note again, to take another tangent. Every time we blame shift, you know who we're actually blaming? I'm going to point this out every time I go to, to Genesis, and I've said this a number of times. You know who we're actually blaming when we blame shift? God. God, what did Adam say? The woman whom you gave me. When you blame circumstances or other people for your sin, you are just blaming God. Because who put those circumstances or people in your life? God. You just think how evil that is. You rebel against God, you deserve death. God confronts you, and you say, it's your fault, God. Listen, the bronze altar didn't let you blame shift. It taught that your sins, your personal sins, needed to be dealt with. This brings me to the sixth and final observation. The sacrifices never ended. They never end. Leviticus, turn to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 12. Leviticus 6, verse 12. It says this. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. You know, one of the reasons many struggle, and I have felt this struggle, many struggle reading through the book of Leviticus, is that it's so detailed. And even repetitive. You get to Leviticus, which is largely about the sacrificial system. And it's just so detailed. Earlier I briefly described five different sacrifices that were made in the courtyard on the bronze altar. But in Leviticus, there's so many more details. I just briefly kind of skimmed over them. And not only that, what we just read in Leviticus 6, 12 through 13, it tells us that, that the sacrifice would have gone on continually. There would always be fire on the bronze altar, always. Verse 13 says, A fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So just think about that for a second. For how detailed and tedious these sacrifices were, can you imagine the job of a priest? It was both tedious and never-ending. Just wake up to do the same thing tomorrow. In other words, for Israel to stay in a covenant relationship with God, sin had to be dealt with 
And it was an endless job because Israel just kept sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning because man keeps sinning and sinning and sinning. Remember I said there was an eight-foot fence around the courtyard that kind of set the boundaries and made it impossible for you just to look in to see what was happening in the courtyard or in the tabernacle. But there would have always been a consistent plume of smoke going up to the heavens. Always. That everyone could see continuously coming from the courtyard ascending into heaven. Anywhere you lived within the camp of Israel, you could see the smoke reminding you of your sin. Reminding you of your need for a sacrifice. The job of a priest was, was unending in the Old Testament and really in a lot of ways it was frustrating. It was frustrating. Will there ever be a permanent solution to man's sin? We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11. Hebrews 10, verse 11, says this, and, and every priest stands daily, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. You know what that is? That's frustrating. <laughs> it's unending. But it's even worse than that, because look at the very end of verse 11, offering repeating, repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The sacrificial system in Leviticus couldn't actually take away sins. It's one of the reasons it was unending. It was never meant to actually be the solution to man's sins. It, just think about it, an animal can't pay the wages of a man's sin. The value of a man is so much more than an animal. Could never pay the wages a man owed death. Therefore, the sacrificial system had one job, and really it was to frustrate Israel. It was to frustrate Israel and point them forward to a permanent solution to sin. Look at verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, look what he did. He sat down at the right hand of God. The priest stood daily in the Old Testament. It was an endless job, ready to do it over and over and over again, to sacrifice it on the altar over and over and over and over again. These men sinned over and over and over and over again. But, but after Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, one sacrifice, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All the Old Testament sacrifices, the millions and millions of animals slaughtered in the Old Testament, they only did one thing. Pointed Israel forward to the true Lamb of God. 
to the substitutionary atonement, the true substitutionary atonement, to the true sacrifices for our sins. Listen, the bronze altar taught the Israelites that the way to God was through substitutionary atonement. There had to be a substitute, that no animal could truly pay the penalty of man's sin. Therefore, the sacrifices on the altar only pointed Israel forward. Hebrews 9.26 says this, But as it is he, that's Jesus, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's why our crosses are empty around here. They're empty. It's wrong to think that we sacrifice Christ over and over and over again on an altar. The Catholics are wrong. There was one sacrifice. He's not on the cross anymore. He's sitting down at the right hand of the Father. It's an empty cross now. Man's sins have been dealt with. And you know what? That's good news. Those that have put their faith in Christ, he is our substitute. He has paid for our sins, past, present, and future sins, all on the cross, one sacrifice. Again, verse 12 says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. We sing praises and hymns and songs to you, Lord, which are so encouraging because you're so good. We're confronted over and over again, Lord, in Scripture that there's a separation between man and you because of our sins. And, and the, the only way to be reconciled with you is through death. Therefore, out of your grace, you sent your Son to be that substitutionary atonement, to be that sacrifice for us, that whoever believes in him, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he was raised on the third day, he's not on the cross, but at your right hand, seated. Whoever believes shall live. God, I pray for anyone that's listening here in this room or online, that they would put their faith in you and your son now. In his beautiful and precious name.